Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate On earth is not his equal Did we in our own strength confide Our striving would be losing we're not the right man on our side The man of God's own choosing Dost ask who that may be Christ Jesus it is He Lord Sabaoth His name From age to age the same And He must win the Friends, welcome to a special uh, informal debate edition of Theology Matters, and uh, we have been doing our series on the Protestant Reformation for, I think this is the third year now, and uh, as of now, we have about 12 hours uh, worth of shows. We've done several debates. The first one we did uh, was with Devin Rose and uh, Nathan Taylor, and you can find our uh, Facebook page at Theology Matters with the Palouse, and you can find that debate. Uh, we've done just several in the past. And so this month we're going to do uh, a few more. And so we're going to start tonight with a uh, two gentlemen that we've had on the show in the past. Uh, last year we actually had uh, Doug Beaumont and Tony Arsenal come on and uh, discuss the topic of justification. And so couple months back, I got a hold of them and and uh, asked them if they wanted to come on and uh, have a dialogue on the topic of purgatory, and they agreed to that. We're going to use the same format, and uh, we, we don't have a whole lot of time, so we're just going to kind of jump into it. Um, I'm going to give them both, I guess, probably five minutes or so, unless they want more to talk about, uh, especially Doug, if he wants to talk kind of what about, about what purgatory is, etc., and then we'll jump into some of the questions. So let me go ahead and introduce you to these guys. Uh, Doug Beaumont is going to be representing the Roman Catholic view on this topic. And uh, Doug earned a MA in apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary, 
where he served as assistant to Dr. Norman Geisler and taught Bible and religion for 10 years before converting to Catholicism. He is currently pursuing a Ph.D. in theology at Northwest University. He is the author of The Message Behind the Movie and has contributed to the Apologetic Study Bible for Students, uh, the Got Questions website, and has published articles in the Christian Apologetics Journal. He also has a blog called Soul Device, where he writes on theology, philosophy, apologetics, and other topics. And he and his wife, Elaine, reside in the Charlotte metro area with their three children. Representing the Protestant meal will be Tony Arsenal. Tony's a graduate of gordon Conwell Theological Society, where he earned a Master of Arts uh, in Church History, a Master of Arts in Theology, and was awarded uh, the Baker Award for Excellence in Theological Studies. He's presented papers with the Gordon-Conwell Theology Forum, the Evangelical Theological Studies, and has the forthcoming book review in the Africanist Journal. Uh, he currently lives in, I guess that's Canaan, New Hampshire, with his wife, Lee, where he teaches systematic theology uh, at his local church and blogs at the uh, Reformed Arsenal. So this is going to be a great discussion. Gentlemen, are you with me? I am, sir. Right here? Yes. Good to All see right. You. Great to have you guys both back on. Had a, had a really good, uh, I thought, fruitful uh, discussion last time. And so that's why I wanted to get you guys both on. You guys both know the topic well and thought it would be a great discussion. So, um, Doug, do you want, you want to kind of start with maybe five minutes or so as to what purgatory is or and then kind of give yeah, Tony a good a idea minutes. just in case. Yeah, I think just yeah, in case take, anyone is take, not familiar with it, that would be a good idea. Yeah, take take uh, take five minutes and uh, tell us about purgatory. Okay, well, basically, um, although a lot of speculation is out there as to how exactly it works, um, the Catholic Church really does not have a super elaborate doctrine of purgatory worked out, at least not dogmatically. Um, there are a few essential components of the doctrine, and basically it is that uh, purification um, for sin exists after most people's deaths, uh, that, it's, that it's required and that it exists, um, that this purification involves some kind of suffering, and that it can be, the process can be assisted um, by the, the righteous deeds like prayers and, and offerings and things like that of those who are still alive. Um, although it is sometimes referred to as maybe a place or um, it's spoken of in terms of time, like how much time someone is in purgatory, um, none of these are actually taught as dogma. Um, rather, it's just the way we typically uh, refer to the process in a way that is, is easy to understand. Um, basically, the idea is that people who die in God's grace but who are not perfectly uh, morally pure, um, although they are assured of eternal salvation through Christ's death and their faith um, in heaven, uh, prior to entering heaven, they go through uh, this act of purification. And so we want to make sure, that, at first right off the bat, that there's no confusion that um, the purification of the saved is not the same thing as the punishment of the unsaved. Uh, someone on their way to hell is on their way to hell, and, and there, is, there is no escape from that. Someone who is on their way to heaven, same deal. Um, the, 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 
uh, purgatory is not a third state that exists eternally. Um, it is not a place that is like a third um, container for someone that uh, maybe isn't good enough for heaven but is too good for hell. It's, it's none of those things. Rather, it's it's more like heaven's mudroom, if I may use a southern <laughs> uh, phrase. Um, basically, it's it's where um, whatever is left over of sin in one's uh, soul is purified and gotten rid of uh, so that when they enter heaven, they enter um, purely. And this is, is fairly closely tied to some of the things that, that help souls in purgatory um, get through the process either faster or however you want to think of it. And this would be um, prayers for them, um, the sacrifice of the mass, uh, almsgiving, basically anything that someone can do uh, to perform righteous deeds in this life, they can sort of dedicate to the holy souls in purgatory uh, to help them get through their purification uh, faster. And I, I think that's probably enough as far as an introduction goes. I'm sure we'll flesh out a lot of the details as we as we go along. But um, again, just to, to reiterate, basically if, if, if somebody believes that we are impure, morally impure, in this life, that we don't reach a, state, reach a state of moral perfection in this life, and that we are, in fact, morally pure in heaven, then something has to happen between death and heaven to purify us. And that is essentially the doctrine of purgatory. Okay. Uh, thank you, Doug. Uh, Tony, do you have anything you want to add to that, or you just want to jump into questions, or, or how do you want to do it? Sure. I thought uh, I thought I would open with a quote from uh, John Calvin. Um, I'm a good reform guy, so I got to go back to the institutes. So I uh, just wanted to sort of set the framework for the debate in terms of what's at stake and what the what the importance of it is. So reading from uh, Book Three, Chapter Five, Section Five of the Institutes, Calvin had just gone through explaining uh, what he saw to be the abuse of. Uh, the flock by the doctrine of purgatory and he says it is perfectly clear from what was lately said that the blood of christ is the only satisfaction expiation and cleansing for the sins of believers what remains but to hold that purgatory is mere blasphemy horrid blasphemy against christ now i want to make it clear that um, anyone who wants to try to frame the catholic doctrine of saying that uh people merit the forgiveness of their sins or they merit um, they merit their own justification or something like that simply doesn't understand the doctrine of purgatory. Um, but I think that one thing we need to make sure we understand is just because we're not talking about justification, uh, speaking from kind of a Protestant framework, doesn't mean that it's not an offense to the work of Christ to uh, somehow move the um, the remission and the uh, purgation of that sin and in, in the process process of sanctification uh, from being Christ's work through the spirit. So I really want to make sure that we're clear on that, that it's not, uh, this isn't uh, really a matter of, um, it's not a soft debate. It's not a soft, uh, it's not a, it's not a discussion that doesn't have, you know, firm lines in the sand. And I think sometimes there are certain uh, sectors of the Protestant quarter, and I'm, I'm sure some of them will come up tonight during the debate uh, that want to make it seem like there really isn't a, um, there really isn't a, a line that needs to be drawn. All right. Thank you, Tony. Uh, general, uh, just for those listening, we have, I had them uh, submit their questions in advance. That way they had some time to uh, look over them and uh, kind of give give a more detailed answer. So uh, if it's okay, I'll just start 
Uh, Tony, I'll ask you Doug's first question. And Doug's first question, I'll give him uh, a little time to clarify if he wants to. But his question is, do you believe that do you believe that nothing unclean can enter heaven? Um, yes, I believe nothing unclean can enter heaven. I suppose you probably want a little bit more than that. So I, I would affirm uh, what the Catholic position is saying, that, that heaven is a place of, of complete and utter purity, that there is no... Um, there is no um, remnant of sin and no leftover stain uh, from our, our earthly life and our sinful natures. Um, I, I might want to might want to flesh out a little bit more exactly what it means to enter heaven and how that all works, because we even see in Scripture that Satan himself, after he has fallen, comes into the throne room in the presence of God. And in the book of Job, we see that happen pretty clearly. Um, so I'm not entirely sure exactly, you know, where we would need to go with that. But I think we need to get specific about what it means. And I guess what I take it to mean is uh, eschatologically, in the end of all things, when, when people have reached their final state uh, in presence with God and are fully beholding his glory, um, there will be no leftover stain of sin and no leftover remnant of, of um, the effects that that sin has had on us. Okay, and what we'll do is about 6.30, we'll move to the second question, so that's about 15 minutes. So at this time, I'm just going to let you and Doug have a conversation. Doug, I'm sure you probably want to go ahead and address what he just said. So you guys go ahead for the next 15 minutes and, and have a discussion. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, the reason for the first question, really, I mean, we, we, we had three questions, so conveniently I tried to orient those around basically the three uh, major claims that give rise to the idea of purgatory. Um, now, of course, Tony, being a, a Bible believer, couldn't answer the question no, <laughs> um, because it specifically says in the book of Revelation uh, that nothing unclean will ever enter. Um, and, and obviously, um, as with most things biblical, we do need to look at exactly what these are, what does this word mean. That's going to depend a lot on our theology. Um, however, in, in Revelation, it's fairly clear um, what is being spoken of. Nothing detestable, nothing false, um, these sorts of things are listed. And, and there's other places in Scripture where we have specific things where Paul says, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, you know, adulterers, this uh, homosexual offenders, these sorts of things. Um, so I really wasn't expecting a, a lot of debate over that particular point. Um, I suppose in some Protestant traditions, um, it, it's it's possible that there would be some mitigating factors there, but um, I think that really the first plank of of the purgatory system is is fairly non-contested between the various Christian traditions. Yeah, and, and okay. I would agree with that. Um, although I might I might want to press you a little bit because it, it seems to me, and, and you're absolutely right, that purgatory is not something that's been well uh, defined dogmatically. There's not. There's not a lot um, in the tradition that would be considered dogmatic, but I would want to press you a little bit on the idea that um, purgatory is not somehow a distinct separate place from heaven. Um, even even something like a waiting room in heaven um, seems to me that you have to hold that the souls that are in purgatory are in a different uh, spatial, probably isn't the right word, but they're in a different location than the souls who are in heaven. Um, so I'm not sure we can really hold that it's not a place or a um, sort of a concrete place 
um, a, a sort of a holding tank. Um, I don't know, maybe you would think of it as kind of like a quarantined off zone of heaven where God's glory isn't fully present, but I, I struggle to kind of understand how we can um, conceive of it as somehow less than a, an actual place. Okay, I'm, I'm not sure, I mean, how important the metaphysics are in, in, in this. Um, just to give an example, uh, Thomas Aquinas, who you know, is my theological hero and, and you know, probably the most important of the doctors of the church, uh, he only devoted two brief questions to this subject in his entire Summa Theologica. Um, and in fact, on this very specific question that you just had, he says this, nothing is clearly stated in Scripture about the situation of purgatory, nor is it possible to offer convincing arguments on the question. Um, so he, he really, I mean, even, even you know, after, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of, of discussion and, and even applying his mind to things that most people today don't even think about with great detail, um, he was not really willing to speak on the, uh, the metaphysics of, of the sort of location. Um, you know, whether a soul can even be said to be located is another question. I mean, obviously they're finite. They're not omnipresent like God is. Um, but place is typically considered a, a material or a physical reality. Um, so again, there, there's a lot of speculation. Um, if you if you want to, to push the uh, the metaphors, I, I think you know you can look at Dante. You know, he's he's got the Divine Comedy in three sections, where hell is is this series of of pits in the earth, and then on the other side of the earth he has this this corresponding mountain, and you know, one is not really in heaven proper until one has climbed up Mount Purgatory and then, you know, ascended into the heavenly spheres. Um, and, you know, that may very well be what what it's like. Um, probably the best thing to say is is that the, the, the holy souls in Purgatory are not beholding uh, the beatific vision. Um, they are not in the presence of God in the way that, that a, um, a fully perfected saint is. Um, Again, whether the location language is, is important, I, I'm I'm neither here nor there on, on that issue. But are we referring to two different states? Yes. Yeah. Purgatory is not heaven. It, it has a different name for a reason. Um, and, yeah, the, the holy souls in purgatory are not in the state of the beatific vision like the saints are. Sure. And, and I, I suspect we'll probably come back to this. And the reason I kind of want to press it is because, at least in other contexts when I've had dialogues um, on the subject, there seems to be a, a move, um, kind of a rhetorical move, to say, well, we don't, we don't think it's a time, there's no duration, we don't think it's a place, there's no location. Um, and, and that's often used to kind of sort of shrouded in mystery, which is makes it difficult to really get a grasp on how do we even talk about what we're talking about is if, if we're talking about something that has no defined boundaries, then how do I lodge objections and how do we assess and critique it? Um, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to anticipate our discussion too much, but I, I do suspect we'll come back to it a little bit later. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Yeah, that's fine. I understand. And, and in fact, that, that was my impression some years ago um, at one of the uh, National Apologetics Conferences, they uh, actually invited Peter Kraft out, a pretty famous Catholic apologist, and he was speaking about some of the differences and similarities with Protestantism and Catholicism, and I remember him saying when he got to the Doctrine of Purgatory, basically the way I laid it out, you know, if, if you agree with these three things, then you already believe in Purgatory, and the rest is just details, and I remember thinking, 
like, oh, come on, you know, Catholics have 10,000 distinctions for everything. You know, if there's <laughs> any question you have, there's some, you know, thousand-page treatise out there on it. That can't really be the case. And and I was actually surprised to discover that, that by and large, he was correct. Uh, there, there really is not much on it. Um, and, I'm, and I'm not just trying to illicitly limit the scope of the discussion to, to just the dogmatic pronouncements, um, but rather even even if you look in the catechism, you know, you've got three or four paragraphs, and, and that's about it. Right. Um, it, it, they're just really, you know, the, the state of the uh, soul really is mysterious and uh, debated within Catholicism itself. The, the important thing being that purification is happening, it involves suffering, and that can be lessened by the righteous deeds of the saints. And that's really it. I mean, you don't have to believe anything else um, in order to fully affirm um, the doctrine of purgatory. Sure. Well, and, and um, you know, I, I have a feeling we're gonna we're gonna probably short circuit the conversation a little bit and move move forward faster than the questions bring us. But I, I would just want to at this point bring in First uh, Corinthians six eleven, which is as such uh, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so I, I think it's important to recognize that at least you know speaking from the reform perspective. This idea that um, Christians who are um, Christians who are justified and in the process of being sanctified are somehow in a state of uncleanness. Um, I just don't see that that really bears out. We see, I mean, we see that grammatically from the aorist verbs in this that it's you know the aorist uh, tense carries a, an implication of an act that was completed uh, entirely in the past at a point in time. Um, so when we say that, you know nothing unclean can enter heaven, I think a Reformed Christian can, can affirm that, absolutely, um, without having to uh, posit some sort of uh, third state where the cleansing that didn't happen in in this life continues on and is completed in the next. Um, you know, just looking at the face of this text, it looks like that cleansing and that purification is already accounted for. Um, granted, there's a little, you know, there's a little bit of that sort of prophetic perfect that happens, or the, the accomplished, uh, you know, verb tense that Paul uses often to, to, describe the finality and the certainty of an event in the future. Um, but it just seems to me that that's a little bit of a specious argument to say, well, you didn't quite, you're, you're not completely sinless now, you're not completely able to refuse to sin now, and so there must be further progression. Um, it just seems like a bit of speculation that I'm not sure is justified. Yeah, I, well, it, we, we may be jumping ahead a little bit, but that's that's just the way these things go because it's it's a conversation. We're not we're not having a, a formal debate here. Um, sure. So I, I I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, you know, one of the things that I find that's interesting about salvation language in Scripture is that you can find um, past tense and future tense um, verbiage applied to the, the notion of salvation, the specific. Uh, notion of sanctification, even justification. Uh, there are times when Paul uses the word sanctification in, the, in something like the past, like 1 Corinthians 6. We also see this in Hebrews 10. Um, but then he also uses it in the future, such as 1 Thessalonians 5, where he says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there, there has to be uh, some way to reconcile both the fact that Paul can talk about sanctification of certain people in the past and talk about it in the future. Um, 
it may be that the Corinthians that he was speaking to were completely sanctified at that at the time that he wrote that letter. Uh, that doesn't mean that they didn't lose it later. Um, and in fact, church history seems to indicate that the Corinthian church didn't uh, do so well. Um, and and with the the believers in First Thessal, uh, Thessalonians five, um, he's very clearly um, asking God, um, you know, praying that they would be sanctified, um, and that this would be uh, going right up until the coming of the Lord, which we know is is even future for us as well. And we even see this with justification um, in Romans two and three. We 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 see justification in the future tense. So I, I'm not sure how much to make out of that. I, I think it's pretty easy on the Catholic paradigm to affirm the past and present uh, tenses of, of all of these salvation uh, terms uh, because we don't hold to once saved, always saved. Um, and we, we see a progression in uh, salvation that is sometimes referred to in Scripture as sanctification and sometimes referred as justification, um, which as far as I know, that that is that's a fairly uncontested uh, view that um, salvation is in some sense a process, even if we break it up into distinct stages. Um, you know, the typical being justification, sanctification, glorification, and yet we see those specific terms used in both future and past tense in Scripture. Yeah, but it, it just seems to me, and I mean, you even quoted this verse when you were explaining the doctrine of purgatory. Um, you know, you talk about specifically. Uh, I, I hate to, I hate to be a little bit brash, but I, I find it hard to believe that you really think that it's a possibility that the Corinthian believers were fully sanctified at this point when he's writing to chastise them about their bad behavior. Um, and the, the context of this is him saying exactly what you're saying has got to be true if purgatory is true. That people who are sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunk, you know, all of these things that you're saying, well, these are the leftover stains that happen because of sin, and those things have to be purged out of us. But then Paul almost, it's almost like Paul's anticipating that that statement, and then he says, but such were some of you, but you were washed. So we, we have this progression in the text where he's saying, you know, and then he does launch right into the next statement that we should flee from sexual immorality. Um, it just does seem to me that that the stains of sin are something that is accomplished and taken care of um, in some real sense on the cross that isn't something that is a part of our experience. Um, so I, I'm just not exactly sure how we can sustain the idea that um, Paul is going to say, well, these are a list of things that will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, and then somehow still hold to the idea that Paul would then sort of this theoretical continuation of thought say, but you still need to be washed and sanctified and, and in the Catholic paradigm justified. Um, I just can't make sense of how that would, would function together. Especially when well, you I, quote this, this particular passage, cutting it off, you know, right at verse 11 to justify the doctrine of purgatory. Oh yeah. And, and I'm not using this to justify it. What, what I'm, I was simply pointing out that the, the verse that you quoted was indeed talking about sanctification in the past, um, but that we also have him talking about it in the future and even praying that it would continue up until the time of, of the return of Christ. Um, in fact, uh, what leads into that is, is something that, he's, that sounds a lot like the First Corinthians passage. First uh, Thessalonians 4, he says, this is your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, et cetera, et cetera. 
so what I'm what I'm saying is is that sanctification in Scripture seems to have a a past, present, and future aspect to it, and so um, th- there's no argument from the past tense that says, oh well, purgatory must be unnecessary because we have this past tense uh, verse right here. Well, there's also future tense verses. Um, so I think it becomes important to see that, you know, is, is sanctification a process? Do we grow in sanctification? Um, is there a sense in which we can be called sanctificated um, now based on something that happened in the past and in the future? It seems like it is if we're going to look at the tenses that are used in Scripture. And, and I, don't, I don't think that either one of our paradigms has trouble explaining that. Um, but since it, that verse was brought up as something that seems contrary to my paradigm. I was just pointing out that it, it in fact, is not. Okay, Tony, go ahead. Uh, take a minute or so to wrap up your answer, and then we need to move on to uh, your question for Doug. So go ahead and take a, a minute or two minutes, respond to Doug, and then we sure. need to get to your question. Sure. So I, I think, um, you know, what Doug said is absolutely right. That no, I don't think any Christian can justify, um, especially not on biblical grounds, the idea that uh, there will still be sin, or there will still be the effects of sin in heaven. Um, what exactly that means, I guess, is something that we can, you know, we can we can hammer out, and I'm sure theologians continue to do that. Um, but I'm not ex- I'm not an always clear uh, exactly how that is supposed to be an option, a problem for the the Protestant paradigm, and I, I'm sure that we'll hammer that out more as we go. All right, let's go ahead and uh, move on to. Your question for Doug. Doug, do you have your your question there that you want to ask, or do you need me to say, pull it up here? I can pull it up and read it if you need me to. Oh, go ahead. You can you can moderate. I don't even have them in front of me actually. <laughs> okay. Um, Tony's question to you is: Please explain the biblical support for the doctrine of purgatory. Please explain the biblical support for the doctrine of purgatory, and then at 6.50, we will move on to the next question. Okay, very good. Um, all right, so going back to the the idea of the, of the process, um, the, the basic reason for believing in purgatory is that um, few, if any, people attain perfection in this life, um, and we know that in heaven, everyone will be in a state of perfection. Um, and therefore, something happens in between. Um, and, and again, the, the details uh, are disputed among numerous parties. But um, the basic outline, I think, is is fairly easy to show from Scripture. Um, <clears throat> when you when you look at whether or not perfection is attained in this life, I mean, all you have to do is just read Paul's letters. Um, he's constantly writing to people who are believers, often very good believers, but they still need a lot of work. Um, in, in Romans 6, he talks about people who have been freed from sin, past tense, um, and they are. this is a result that comes with sanctification, and the outcome of that is eternal life. So simply being freed from sin does not mean that one is already sanctified, past tense. Uh, in James 2, he talks about people who um, keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, still guilty, and we all stumble in various ways, James chapter 3. So if if to stumble with relation to righteousness makes one guilty and we all stumble in various ways, then clearly um, in this life there are very few who are going to be able to say that they have achieved 
uh, moral perfection. Uh, of course, the famous passages in First John, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Uh, but if we confess, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Uh, there's not really any time limit set on this. This, this could go right up until the, the very instant of death. Um, and uh, I, I, I got a little Calvin for you here, uh, Tony. Uh, the Institutes 2.14.10, Calvin said, No perfection can come to us so long as we are clothed in this flesh. Uh, the law will always have grounds for accusing and condemning us. So, again, and again, I don't, I don't think that this is that either one of these are terribly contested. Um, in, uh, in heaven, everyone is perfected. We've already heard uh, Revelation twenty one twenty seven: nothing unclean uh, will enter heaven. Uh, Habakkuk one says that God has pure eyes that will not even behold evil and look on wrong. Ephesians five: everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous. Um, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Um, Hebrews 12:14. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Um, and then a, a couple verses later, the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven um, are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So, if we have these these two planks uh, that you know, few, if any, are perfected in this life, and they are perfected in heaven, something had to happen in between. So. I think that really the, the only basis for debate or dispute in this has to do with what exactly it is that purifies somebody. And it seems in Scripture that um, suffering and the, the testing or the trials of faith are, are very closely tied to sanctification. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 that we need to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit and make holiness perfect. Okay? Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we have salvation through sanctification. A couple verses down, he says, Therefore, stand fast and hold to the traditions which you have been taught. Uh, Romans 5, uh, we have access by faith into his grace. Um, being justified by faith, sorry, Romans 5, 3 through 5, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's justification, by whom we have access by faith into his grace. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Well, why would we glory in tribulations if we're already justified by faith? Well, because tribulation works with patience, patience experience, experience hope. Um <clears throat> And the love of God becomes shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. So even for someone who is justified, there, there is still um, purification to come. And, and often it has to do with sufferings. Um, in Philippians 2 and 3, um, when he talks about the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. It says, uh, Paul says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I press on to make it my own. Um, and, and Paul talks, of course, a lot about his, his own sufferings in his letters. And in Colossians 1.24, we have a very uh, curious verse, which is actually, the, the, as a young Christian, the first one that I ever really tried to study out, never really got a, a clear answer on it. Um, but he says, uh, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So here we, we have a whole bunch of, of interesting themes coming up, uh, that, that somehow Paul's sufferings are actually benefiting the church, 
and that his sufferings are in some way completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Um, so the Catholic paradigm says, well, sure, Christ is the head of the body. Um, what happens to the body affects the whole body, and um, our suffering can actually be applied to each other. Uh, we suffer for the body. And so it's not that Christ on the cross you know, didn't quite make it, you know, like he needed to suffer a certain amount to get people saved, and he didn't quite make it, and so now there's this remainder that we have to make up for. That's what it sounded like, you know, when I first read it. Uh, rather, it is that the, the sufferings um, that are involved with salvation continue in the body um, right up until the end of time. As long as there's a church, there's going to be sufferings in it, and those sufferings are actually good uh, for the body. Um, in First Peter 1 through 5, he talks about the trial of faith, which will be uh, more precious than gold, that it may be tried with fire and be found unto praise and honor and glory. And then he says, uh, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, um, <clears throat> which sounds a lot like uh, Sirach 2, 1 through 6 in the, uh, the Catholic Old Testament, by the way. Um, so again, we see faith, we see salvation, and trials, um, even trial by fire, being put together here. And one of the classic verses you know, in Hebrews 12, the dis concerning the discipline of the Lord, um, it is those who are saved, th those who are actually part of God's family, that are um, punished by him, disciplined by him, chastised by him. Um, this is a discipline that we uh, have to endure. Okay, why? Because God is actually treating us as sons when that happens. He's purifying us. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Well, why would God do this? A couple verses down, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Um, suffering yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, and without holiness no one will see the Lord. So there you pretty much have it all in, in one section there, Hebrews 12, 5-15. But um, the suffering we go through actually makes us holy, makes us righteous, and without it we won't see God. And we see um, similar things in you know, 1 Peter 4 and some other places like that. But taking this, taking this all together is that if, if suffering is uh, part of what it means to be sanctified, and if we die in this life having not been fully sanctified and we enter heaven fully sanctified, then it makes good sense that there is a period of suffering in between that does the job. And, I mean, there's, there's you know, depending on which exact points we want to bring up, there's, there's you know, more to it biblically. But I'll, I'll leave it there for the moment um, and, and let Tony uh, comment. Sure. So you didn't even go to 1 Corinthians 3. Yeah, I'm, I'm saving that one. <laughs> I figured. So, uh, I, think, I mean, I think obviously you're reading the Bible. So there's nothing that a, a Christian is uh, – well, I shouldn't say that. There's nothing that a, a biblical Christian is going to look at and say, well, I really disagree with that. Um, I, I think where we, need to, where we need to sort of spend some time, though, is establishing where we have justification for thinking that this process does continue past death. Because it seems like where we have to, we have to, uh, what we have to do is we, you know, we can establish these planks that you're setting out. We can establish these premises that um, if these premises are true, then uh, then there must be purgatory. But the, the the premise that I don't see established that needs to be established is uh, the idea that this process continues past death. 
So I get that the idea that that um, we can suffer all the way up until death. I get the idea that um, we're never fully sanctified, and, and you know we'll need to parse out exactly what fully sanctified even means, um, because what right now what we're talking about is moral perfection. But classically, the doctrine of purgatory has also been uh, been talked about in terms of stain and in terms of um, the consequences of sin, not necessarily. Uh, the ongoing, um, the ongoing state of my soul in terms of my propensity to sin. So I think there's different things that are happening. So you know, just to look at a few here, um, you know, you read First John, First uh, John, to forgive and purify. Well, I see that as two sides of the same coin. Forgiveness and purification are both accomplished by Christ on the cross and fully applied to the believer by the Holy Spirit through the process of sanctification in life. Um, so I, I just don't see a justification in that passage to try to extend that sanctification period past death. Um, and, you know, just a, just a sort of thought that came to me is, isn't, isn't death the final suffering? Isn't death the ultimate suffering? Um, that, that separation of the body from the soul, isn't that suffering enough to, to bring about that just, or that, that, um, to bring about that, uh, final purity? Um, you know, so I, I think there are other ways to resolve that. What do we do with the fact that we're not perfect when we die? Um, you know, you take a look at Hebrews 12, 5 through 12, uh, 5 through 15. The, the, the thing that really stuck out to me as I was reading that um, is that the holiness that we're given is Christ sharing his righteousness with us. It's not a holiness that comes to us from within ourselves or from uh, our own suffering. It's, it's Christ who's sharing that righteousness with us. It's his righteousness. So we have that doctrine of imputed righteousness right there on the test or right there on the, the text. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, the Catholic paradigm has to interpret this sharing his holiness as, um, as sort of the idea that our holiness somehow mingles with his holiness because it is an inherent holiness that the Catholic wants to affirm. Um, where I see sharing in his righteousness as his righteousness being shared with me, not my righteousness becoming compatible mingling with his um just to touch on revelation 21 quickly um, I, I found it interesting the contrast in revelation 21 7 but nothing unclean will ever enter it no anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life so the contrast that's being set up is not between unclean and clean as in those who have not been purified and those who have been purified but between unclean and those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So um, unless, I guess unless, you know, the, the divine, the angel is standing there with the quill, and every time someone gets through with the purgation process, they write down the name as they cross the threshold or open the door, or step out of the mudroom or whatever we're talking about, it, it just seems to me that that's not a feasible construct for that passage. Um, you know, instead of having this picture where your name is in the Book of Life, and therefore you can enter the which is what the text is presenting us, we have this sort of strained uh, exegesis which forces us to to postulate like a transition point after pur purgation where the, the name gets in there because that's when they become unclean. So I'm just not entirely sure how we can really frame that up. Um, and, you know, I, I think we just look at this, we just, we're missing that premise that I really, I really would like to see um, justified is that premise that 
this process is one not completed uh, in life or can't be completed in life, um, and two that this process necessarily extends past death. And I know those are kind of related premises, so, so I, I'm, I guess I'm interested in hearing that. Okay, uh, Tony, uh, we're just having a little little technical issues. Uh, Doug's cell phone there. He's, uh, we're getting a lot of kind of background noise. Hey, Doug, can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you fine. Okay, sounds like Darth Vader's <laughs> on the phone. So I'm not, not sure if you're in a in a windy area or if you can move the mic a little bit from your mouth. But uh, getting a lot of uh, like breathing into the mic. So oh, I'm not sure if you can. Yeah, that sounds better. Yep. So I'll let you go ahead and respond to uh, Tony there. Okay, I just switched to a different hands-free. Is this okay? Yep, yeah, it sounds a lot better, not getting nearly the uh, the breathing in that. So, yep. Very good, very good. Okay. Um, yeah, um, actually, a, a number of things that, that Tony said are actually quite compatible with, with uh, Catholic thinking as well. Um, and switching the mics, I, I kind of lost my place here, as far as the two things. Okay, um, first of all, um, it is not actually Catholic teaching to vacation is not possible in this life. Um, it is, in fact, that that's uh, purgatory is not strictly necessary uh, for all people. Um, it, it is for those who die in a state of grace, but who also retain um, the stain of sin, uh, payment left due for sin, this sort of thing, which we'll we'll probably get to later. Um, but yeah, it, it is actually not against uh, Catholic teaching to say that. In fact, I think it's it's actually more Catholic to say that someone can be fully sanctified in this life. Um, I, I'm I'm not sure if there is a, Protest, a strong Protestant tradition that says that people can be uh, morally perfected in this in this life. But in any case, uh, the idea is that, that purgatory is for that class of people. That this isn't just something universal uh, that happens to everybody. And I think, you know, I, I'm not sure how else to think of it other than. If somebody dies on their way to heaven, again, we're only talking about the elect here. We're only talking about saved people. If somebody dies and they retain uh, problematic, sinful tendencies, um, actions that have not been uh, repaid in, in some kind of state of injustice, and then later when we see them in heaven, they don't have those things, then something happened. And... Maybe it does happen at the instant of death. I mean, that, that's not, that, that is also not incompatible with Catholic theology. Now, of course, it can't just be death per se because everybody dies and you don't have perfectly or, uh, sanctified people going to hell. Um, but yeah, it, it, is, it is open as to whether or not the suffering is instantaneous. Um, and, and that's why I really, you know, I, I realize that it may be interesting to talk about whether it's a place or how much time there is. And, and, and I think, unfortunately, it usually is spoken of that way. Um, but that really isn't the doctrine. It just isn't. So um, if, if the issue is how long it is or where it is, uh, those things are completely open. Um, it, uh, it could be that all the suffering one needs happens instantaneously and it just changes in quality depending on, on how much somebody needs to be purified from. So that, that's, not a, that's not a problem for, for either paradigm. Um, and I just I think 
unless I'm missing something, it seems like simple logic that if somebody dies in state X and then is found in heaven in state not X, that something changed. And, and all purgatory says is that that change is available to people, is required of certain people um, who don't die in a state of, of uh, perfection and, and total um, exhaustion from sin, and that it involves suffering. That, that's it. It's just, those, it's just that. Um, so that, that's my response to those two points. Right, and, and I think this this gets back to kind of where I was coming at earlier. Is is um, there seems to be a pretty clear trajectory within the the Catholic um, paradigm as far as the development of this doctrine that you know it was really clear in in the older language about purgatory that it was a place, it was a place, it was a time, um, you know, and there's a retroactive, and we, we talked in, in depth about this in the last one, so I don't want to belabor the doctrinal development point too much, but the, the tactic that I see being employed um, when I'm dialoguing with Catholics on this is this idea that, well, it, it's not a place, it's not a time, it's just an experience, and so um, it's really not all that different than what you're saying anyways. And, and there's this kind of idea that like, well, see, you're Catholic and you didn't even know it. And that, that to me just is not going to cut it because it seems as though there has to be, whether we, you know, maybe place is the wrong word. Um, I get that we're struggling to come up with terms for what an, a, an atemporal, aspatial uh, thing, it, what to call that. But there, there's some sort of experience that's happening. Um, that is happening to people after death that is obtaining them um, some some form of merit by which their suffering is is um, obtaining them purification um, and so we have this process that 's happening, but then the the Catholic who 's trying to push back against it and trying to make it look very friendly to Protestants is is limiting this experience to being something that 's atemporal and and aspatial. But what what do we even how can we even conceptualize an experience that doesn't occur within time? How can that even be a possibility? Um, so then, of course, the next step is to say, well, it's a mystery, and we don't we don't have a way to talk about it. But to me, that just that just smacks of a way to shut down a conversation when when you don't really have a way to respond. And one of your questions that we're going to get to, and I'm I'm going to preempt it a little bit, is trying to get at the point that sanctification is necessarily an experience. It's something that we experience in time as persons conscious of it. But how can a person who is always a temporal creature, there's never a point when a human becomes atemporal, how can a temporal creature ever experience something that doesn't have a timestamp on it? Okay, Doug, uh, take two minutes, wrap us up, and then we move on to your question to Tony. you got two minutes. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, what, one thing I want to point out is is that um, you know, due to doctrinal development, uh, you know, the, the, the Catholic is held to what has been dogmatically pronounced. Uh, a lot of people have talked about a lot of things. Um, and, you know, it, this isn't, uh, it, the process is not to go back through and, and proof text things and then change it uh, for apologetic purposes. I, I'm, I'm just saying what it is. And, and I'm not trying to make it palatable to Protestants. Um, all I'm really saying is that, look, here is the range of possible uh, ways of describing purgatory. And, and there are people that make the same arguments that you make, Tony. I mean, yeah, a, a, a timeless um, event for a, a timed creature doesn't make a lot of metaphysical sense. 
um, the instant may be the smallest instant of time that, that can exist. Um, what I'm saying is, is that it's just, it's just rather fruitless to really get a lot, to try to get a lot of traction out of the doctrine of purgatory, talking about things that have not, are not actually part of the doctrine. Um, I mean, if, if we can speculate, but that, that's not really my job. <laughs> um, you know, this is not an area that I do theology in. Uh, so I, I'm merely saying what the church actually teaches. Go ahead, Devin. All right. Um, let's go on to the next question for uh, you, Tony, from Doug. Is can someone, uh, even a Christian, be truly clean, i.e. sinless, in this life? So can someone, even a Christian, be truly clean or sinless in this life? Sure. And and I um I would start out by saying I, I think the question is is a loaded question. Um and I mean that in the sense that it's a it's a fallacious question. Um the question itself pre- presupposes the idea that clean and sinless and I take sinless to mean uh able to not sin or um never sinning, it presupposes that those two things are synonymous. And I, I just don't accept that as a as a viable definition. So we can be clean and we're cleansed by the blood of Christ. And that, that language is all over the scripture. And, and we talked about one example earlier. We can be cleansed by the, uh, by the blood of Christ and made clean, um, but at the same time be people who are still struggling to war against sin. Um, you know, the famous, the famous phrase, simul justus et peccator, the idea that we're both sinners and saved that were both saints and sinners, um, it's, it's, you know, springs true. And I think we have passages in the scripture, you know, I'm just thinking off the top of my head to the pure, all things are pure. Well, that presupposes that there are people who are pure. Um, and the people who are pure in that passage are Christians. And to those who are, uh, those who are defiled, nothing is pure. And it presupposes that those who are defiled are non-Christians. So there's there's this binary category in the scripture between those who are pure and those who are not pure. And it's not, um, there are Christians who are pure, the apostles who are pure and, and who go straight to heaven and they, they get, you know, they get straight through there without purgatory. And then there's the other Christians who aren't pure. The contrast is always between those who are in Christ and those who are not Christ, those who are in Christ and those who are in Adam, those who are pure and those who are impure. So um, I would absolutely affirm that nothing that is not clean can enter heaven. Um, I would reject the idea that that necessarily means that we have to reach a state of sinless perfectionism in this life in order to be uh, in order to be pure. Christ's merit uh, is applied to us completely, um, and that you know to speak in sort of the Catholic way of talking. I don't see why that would um, necessitate his merit being applied to us only in terms of our legal penalty um, and having our sins remitted, but not the consequences of those sins, not the penalty of those sins. Um, those, those two concepts don't really seem to be coherent. So when we have someone who says, um, don't worry, I forgive you for breaking the lamp. Um, we recognize that um, they, they don't necessarily really forgive completely if they still then expect the person to, um, pay for the lamp. We've had all, you know, everybody's had that experience where some, they get in an argument with someone and someone says, don't worry, I forgive you. This is over. You know, let's not, let's not talk about it anymore. And then a couple of days later, the same, the same point comes up and you know that they never really forgave you. And to me, the idea that we have 
um, the forgiveness of sins, but we still have to suffer for the penalty um, is is somewhat incoherent. And that's that's why I'm at a little bit of a loss with Doug's presentation, because the way I've always had it explained to me is that, well, when you sin, it, it kind of leaves a dark spot on your soul. You get a little dirty. And, um, you know, when you go through purgation, that's like taking a bath and it's cl cleaning off that dirt. Even though you're forgiven of the sin, the consequences of the sin, the, the, the stain of the sin is still there, and that's what's being purged. Um, but Doug, Doug's presentation seems to focus much more on the idea of um, moral perfection and the ability to not sin. Um, so I'm not exactly sure, and, and that's, that's just how every Catholic apologist I've ever interacted with has explained it to me. And they've, they've even said things like, it might be better to think of purgatory as a bathtub or a fountain than it is to think of it as a fire, which I know is, you know, those are all metaphorical languages getting at the same thing. Um, but I just reject that that idea that unclean and sinless mean the same thing, or clean and sinless mean the same thing. Yeah, that's that's fine. Um, I, I was I was using the word clean to tie it into the first question, but but just to be clear, you, you would say that sinless perfection is not possible in this life, or that or that it is. I'm really just curious. It is. I, I it's not. Yeah, it's not possible in this life to be completely free from sin uh, and to completely avoid sin. Okay, and is someone in heaven in that state? No. Okay, so that that really is is all I was trying to get at is, is that there there is there is a state that people are in this life um, that they can't get out of, uh, forgiven or not, and when they are in heaven they are not in that state. Okay, so really that's that's the two you know two out of the three planks are are settled right there. Uh, we don't need sure, to use and, the, the clean the clean language. Sure. And so what, what justifies um, positing some sort of experience beyond death itself for a Christian that, um, that necessitates that transition? So when I look at that, I say um, whether, whether it's the separation of the spirit from the body and not in some sort of platonic, the body is dirty and the spirit is pure sense, but the, the, the separation, the experience of the, the spirit being separated from the body, what is it that makes it so that's not the experience? I'm not saying it that's what it is, but that's just one one point that I could point at and say, well, that's what it is. Um, you know, and we're speculating based on on statements, logical statements that we're stringing together, which is fine. You know, it's systematic theology right there. But um, you know, if we use Occam's razor, why are we positing some experience that is not death itself, but is after death, even if it's only the smallest conceivable instant of time? what justification is there for adding that third or that extra step into the process? I just, that's, that's where I'm stumbling. Okay. Well, I, I think, you know, de death, if, if we're talking about the process of the soul separating from the body, then, then there's, there's obviously a time before and a time after. Um, if, if that is where purgatory gets, gets stuck um, again, that that's not contrary to Catholic teaching. Um, when you bring in verses like First uh, Corinthians three, which which I was I was holding off on, um, <laughs> when it when it talks about judgment, judgment of fire, judging the works, purification language, all this you know suffering loss, we have all this kind of thing in there. Um, then uh, it, it seems to me that there's at least some openness to the idea that there is a process that that people undergo that is something that takes place after death. Again, it doesn't have to, um, but there, there does seem to be something that actually is happening to a person just like it does in life. To be sanctified in life is to experience personal suffering 
and um, make restitution uh, for things that we have done wrong to, to the best of our ability. I mean, we're finite and we're limited and we're imperfect. And so, um, you know, perfect justice is not going to be achieved in this life. This is why we have to, you know, fudge a little bit on some things. Um, but I think for the for the soul that is headed to heaven, um, that the process doesn't seem like it needs to be any different uh, than what we see in Scripture. In Scripture, we are forgiven of sin, but we are also uh, paying for the things we've, we've done, and those are and it's good for us to do that. It actually changes us. Um, you know, David was forgiven for his adultery and murder, and yet he was punished by having his child taken away. Uh, Moses was forgiven and saved when he died outside the Holy Land as a punishment. So I don't think that forgiveness and punishment or restitution are, are nearly as contrary as um, as you kind of implied with your with your lamp um, image. Uh, I, I don't think that they're contrary to one another at all. I think that justice is served when when all things are made right. When when we return to a state of equality, and and because you, you've you've brought this up before, but this this idea of the stain, uh, yeah, absolutely, purgatory is not about making a person better. It's about getting rid of, of sin, sinful attachments, and also um, paying for the evil effects of sin that one has not uh, dealt with in this life. So I don't think there's there's any, any problem there. Um, oh. Hello? I'm still here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yep. sorry. I just the, the, my phone just like wigged out all of a sudden. <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I you know I I'm not really sure of you know I I don't have a, a lot to say about the nature of the purgation um, because I'm I'm really only wanting to to stick to what the church is teaching officially. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right to say that it is also um, about cleaning up the soul in the sense of a, a bath, I guess. Um, but, but again, other than the fact that someone dies in one state and then appears in heaven in a different state, I'm, I'm not sure what, what other argument needs to be given that something occurs in between those two things. And uh, location, time is not an issue, as far, at least as far as the Catholic dogma goes. Um, it right. may very well and, and be that the death itself you know, opens the space for that to happen, and then that's the end of it. And that's what I'm saying, though, is that you, you are the the. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the church the church teaches that death and purgatory are separate things. That there's a point where you're on earth, you're a living human being, and then you die, and you are no longer. I know living in a different sense, but you're no longer a living um, psychosomatic unity human being. Then, even if we're just talking about logical sequencing, there's purgatory and then there's heaven. The Logically, idea that yeah. somehow that death death itself could be purgatory, um, that's not a Catholic teaching. No, I, I don't know anybody that, that would say that that is it. Right, what and I'm so this is, this is... is go ahead. I, I'm, simply, I'm simply saying that death, um, as far as the, the instantaneous nature, as far as the, well, what else does there have to be, um, you know, s- sinners and saints both die. Um, so the, the soul separating from the body, um, I mean, it, it, I know you said it's not platonic, but it, it does kind of sound like it to say that, well, the, the, 
the instant that the soul is not part of the body anymore, that just is perfects it. Um, I, I don't see how that would perfect it. Um, my my sinful tendencies are not just in my body. Uh, my soul needs purification, and my body needs purification. Uh, so separating them, I, I don't see any reason you know, scripturally uh, to think that that is what would accomplish uh, the purging of sin. Right, and, and obviously, uh, you know, I'm trying to operate within your framework a little bit when I use that language. I don't think that there needs to be something. Uh, that's kind of the point of the debate. But my point is that, you know, we talk about, uh, you and I would both agree that the suffering that a, a non-Christian or someone who's not in a state of grace undergoes is not uh, the kind of suffering that Paul takes joy in that, that you know, creates endurance and perfection, all those things. So we can say that a, a person who's not a Christian, who doesn't die in a state of grace, there's no hope at that point. They're headed to hell and there's no more, uh, there's no more to talk about on that end of it. But it seems to me that the ripping asunder of your soul from your, from your body is a suffering experience. And so, you know, when the Catholic talks about, well, there needs to be a, there needs to be a suffering that happens in order to purge, uh, purge the person from their sin. That's why I'm saying is I, I'm not sure why there would be something in it needed in addition to that. Um, and that's, that's the problem is that your system, the purgatorial system posits that there has to be something in addition to that. Now, I don't even think that there has to be um, I don't even think there has to be a suffering that finalizes the sanctification process. Um, I think that sanctification is a, is a both and in that there's a, there's a point in time where you are sanctified, where you are clean. And then there's a point, uh, there's a progression over time where your outward behavior and your outward life grows in, com in conformity to that reality. There's a permanent break with the power of sin that happens upon justification that in, in a very real sense, that person is permanently and completely sanctified in that they are permanently and completely set apart as holy and sin no longer has ultimate power in that person's life. They now are able not to sin. They're just not able to completely not sin. So, so what I'm trying to get at is just from a philosophical standpoint, even if we, even if we take out the, um, take out the, the, just the tradition of the church if we're talking about a purely philosophical standpoint, and I grant you all three of your planks, I grant you that no one is clean on this side of death. No one, no one finishes that process. That's plank one. People in heaven are clean because of uh, that second plank. The third plank that there has to be something in between. Um, I don't see that that's a premise that's been supported. I don't see that that's a premise that's been substantiated. And that's what I'm, I'm, you know, I feel like a broker record. I keep harping on that, um, but it it doesn't do to just collapse it in and say, well, it could be death. Maybe death is where purgatory happens. Maybe that moment in time, um, and that's the trend that I see as it. You know, as I look at the the sources from the ancient church that talks about purgatory. I look at um, you know the great fear of purgatory that happens that people are. Um, you know, spending away their life savings in the in the Reformation, trying to avoid this fear, and the the real idea that that Catholics live with day in and day out that purgatory is a temporal location. I get that that's not the official uh, teaching of the Church, but you you pull a hundred Catholics in the pews, and I know this came up last time that that that's not a great way to look at it, but you pull a hundred Catholics in the pew, they're going to think a thousand years of suffering means a thousand years of suffering. So this 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 third plank that there has to be this third state that exists somehow between heaven and hell on, on the conceptual line. Um, 
I just don't see that supported, not supported by scripture, um, and I don't see it even supported just by logic. Yeah, well, we're, I, I think we can just, uh, you know, listeners can replay the tape. Because uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know any other way to uh, to argue logically that that being translated from one state to another uh, doesn't involve something happening. Um, that's, that just seems clear. The, the only question is what happens? Uh, what is it that makes me prone to sin in this life and not in heaven? Something had to change. Um, and, again, because Scripture typically refers to sanctification as, as suffering and uh, speaks specifically of a, a fiery judgment of works for believers after death. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that, that this, this isn't a deduction. I'm, I'm not taking a bunch of scripture verses and adding them all together and saying that that equals purgatory. Um, I'm merely saying that, that all, all of the material needed uh, for purgatory to be true is there. Um, it, it, uh, it's not that it can't possibly be explained any other way. Um, again, I'm not, I'm not doing a, de- a deduction here. Um, you know, First Corinthians three again. Just in case anyone's not familiar with it, it's, it this is where Paul is talking about uh, people's work will be manifest; it will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the work, um, and then if if some survives, you get a reward. It, uh, if it's burned up, you suffer loss. Still saved though. Either way, only as through fire. Um, uh, Ambrose, Jerome, Augustine, Gregory—they uh, all took this uh, to be referring to something like purgatory. Um, and, and again, I, I'm not saying that proves it. I, I'm just saying that I, I think that logic demands that we that we at least acknowledge that there is some mechanism for the change that happens from this life to the next. And Scripture seems to indicate that the kind of thing that would do that is the suffering um, that uh, produces sanctification. Sure. Okay, Tony, well, let's, Tony, Tony, let's do this. Let's go ahead. We'll give you two minutes. Uh, wrap up the question, and then what we're going to do is take a break for uh, two minutes, let you guys, you know, use the restroom or whatever, and then we'll move on to your question for Doug. Take two minutes and uh, go ahead and wrap this section out. Sure. Well, I'm going to call you a little bit because Augustine, speaking on this passage, actually doesn't believe it refers to purgatory. Um, he believes it refers to um, persecution in this world. Um, he, he talks about how um, the person who is saved uh, his his wood, hay, and stubble are the attachment to this life, but he talks about how those things are burned up in this life as the believer uh, faces persecution, and that's in Enchiridion 68. Um, I, I won't read the whole thing because it's, um, it's a bit long, but he, he makes it clear he's talking about things that happen before death. And, and I, I do, uh, we will need to come back to uh, First uh, Corinthians three, because you know it's it's very easy to throw out what you've thrown out, but I don't think that a real uh, an, even just a surface level read of the text bears out what you're saying about it about it applying the way that you're saying it does. So um, we'll, we'll come back to it, I'm sure, but um, you know I, I really think we need to dig into it a little bit more. All right, that sounds good. We'll go ahead and uh, take a break real quick, and uh, we will come back with uh, some more questions from Tony, and we'll be looking at uh, Doug to explain the historical development of the doctrine of purgatory. Stay with us, folks, and uh, we'll be right back. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. Spiritual rebirth is the work of God. 
When Paul speaks in Ephesians 2 about being quickened by the Holy Ghost while we're dead in sin and trespasses, he's talking about regeneration, which is a supernatural work. It is a work done from above by the immediate power of God, and it is something that only God can do. You cannot make yourself be reborn any more than Lazarus could have brought himself out of the tomb. Just as you did not do anything for your natural birth except be born, so your rebirth is a matter of the mercy and grace of God. For today's special offer, visit RenewingYourMind.org. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. I'm here with Dr. Norman Geisler. If you've been a Christian long enough, we've all experienced the Jehovah's Witness coming to our door. My question is, are Jehovah's Witnesses a cult? Well, a cult is defined as a group that claims to be Christian, but denies one or more essential Christian doctrines. And there are about 14 essential Christian doctrines. We have a book on it called uh, Conviction uh, Without Compromise. It has a chapter on each of these fundamental doctrines, like the deity of Christ. They deny that. The doctrine of hell. They deny that. They deny uh, the uh, bodily resurrection. Well, there are three right off the bat that they uh, don't believe. So how can you be a Christian when you deny fundamental Christian doctrine. Psalm 11.3 says, If the foundation be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? So you're going to call it a, a building if it doesn't have any foundations left to it, if it's crumbling because the foundation's out there. Jehovah's Witnesses are not a Christian group. They're a Christian cult because they claim to be Christian but deny Christian doctrines, which makes them essentially a Christian cult. All right, folks, welcome back. Glad you could join us, and uh, we're about halfway, well, a little more than halfway through this debate. Uh, we've got a whole month of these kind of shows coming up. Next week we will be doing a debate on the doctrine of sola scriptura, so you guys want to join us for that, and uh, looking at doing a couple other things as well. So uh, be sure to uh, join us. If, if you've not liked us on Facebook, go to Theology Matters with the Palouse. You'll find all of our podcasts there and uh, listen, to our, listen to our past shows. So I think we are at the section now where Tony is now at his second question for Doug. Uh, is that correct, guys? Yes, it is. All yes. right. Doug, can you please explain uh, the historical development of the doctrine of purgatory? So explain the historical development of the doctrine of purgatory and about, uh, what, seven... 35, we'll go ahead and go to the next question. You guys are you guys are both doing a great job. Just love the discussion, love the tone. It's 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 even good to see a little more aggressiveness from both of you guys this time. That's that's good. We all know that it's you know, you guys are not attacking the person, but you're going after the arguments. And I think that we certainly respect that. So good job. Doug, I'll go ahead and turn it to, over to you guys now. Yeah, I, I appreciate speaking with you in this way as well, Tony. Um, 
it's uh, that's one of the reasons I agreed to be on here was because of uh, our interchange last time. Um, I wanted to just begin the uh, the historical section here, I guess, um, with a, a a few sentences from John Henry Newman. He says there are two doctrines which are generally associated with the name of uh, the fathers of the fourth and fifth centuries, and which can show little definite or at least partial testimony in their behalf before this time, purgatory and original sin. Okay, so he's, he's beginning by saying that basically purgatory and original sin are typically associated with fathers of the 4th and 5th centuries and show very little uh, testimony prior to this time. He said, on the one hand, some notion of suffering or disadvantage or punishment after this life in the case of the faithful departed or other vague forms of the doctrine of purgatory has in its favor almost a consensus of the first four ages of the church, though some fathers state it with far greater openness and decision than others. And he cites like two dozen names. And then he says, whereas no one will say that there is a testimony of the fathers equally strong for the doctrine of original sin. And so I just think it's important to point out here that uh, two things. One, um, while it is true that Catholic doctrine is uh, based on holy tradition, scripture and tradition, um, that doesn't always mean that we can just go back to the first century and find the catechism. (laughs) Um, There are, and and this would probably require a whole other show looking at the time, uh, there are ingredients in what eventually became the doctrine of purgatory, uh, such as, the idea that uh, there were prayers for the dead, for example. Uh, Prayers for the dead may not seem like something really terribly important to purgatory, but the idea is that if between death and heaven, or between death and hell, or death and the afterlife, whatever you want to call it, that nothing took place, then there would be absolutely no point in making prayers for someone that has died. Um, Talks about baptism for the dead. Why would you baptize if there was nothing between death and heaven, death and the afterlife, that could possibly be affected by it? Um, and, and so as early as the first century, you see uh, Christians recording prayers for the dead. We see these in the catacombs. Um, there are um, other analogs in, in extra-biblical writings, such as First Enoch, um, and, and even some Jewish writings that are very indirectly related, but the important thing to see is that right off the bat, we are already seeing Christians at least acting like things they do can affect the afterlife of someone who has already died. By the second century, um, you see this all over the place. Now you have the rise of the church fathers in various writings. Um, The liturgies that are starting to develop are including uh, special Eucharistic celebrations for the dead, prayers for the departed. Um, This is all over the East and the West. Um, Clement of Alexandria, writing in the uh, um, late 2nd century, or I'm I'm sorry, uh, yeah, late 2nd century, um, speaks of the believer through discipline, divesting himself of, of the passions, um, passing on to mansions which are greater than the former ones, uh, taking with him the characteristic of repentance from sins committed after baptism. And then he talks about um, torment. He says the, the greatest torments indeed are assigned to the believer. Okay, why? God's righteousness is good, his goodness is righteous, and the punishment 
I'm sorry, and though the punishments cease in the course of completion of the expiation and purification of each one, uh, yet those who have very great and permanent grief are found worthy of the other fold. Kind of an ob- obtuse uh, quote. <laughs> but uh, so very, very early on, he's saying that, yes, there are those who are, are going to hell, they are going to suffer, um, but God also brings suffering to believers um, in order to um, help them become righteous. When you get to the third century now, we're, we're really in the age where um, the church fathers are really starting to write. Uh, Tertullian talks about sacrifices for the dead on their birthday and anniversaries. So this is something that occurs uh, over time, not just uh, at the instant of death. Um, he interprets Matthew 5.25, um, the, uh, the parable of the uh, returning the very last farthing, um, to mean the smallest offense, which has to be recompensed before the resurrection. Um, I mean, I've got pages of quotes, and, and I don't, I don't want to be annoying, but just to name some names, um, what you're seeing: uh, Cyprian of Carthage, Origen, readings from the Apostolic Constitution, get into the fourth century, um, Basil, Cyril of Jerusalem, Gregory of Nyssa, Ambrose, Chrysostom, uh, Augustine. Um, you're seeing more and more and more of these, uh, the development happening where instead of just prayers for the dead, now they're talking about why there are these actions being undertaken, and it is to release people from the suffering that they are going through in order to purge, be purged of their sin. Uh, Cyprian refers to it as being purged by fire. Um, Origen, also referring to 1 Corinthians 3, talks about, um, talks about the same thing. Um, the Apostolic Constitutions talk about praying for our brethren that are at rest in Christ, um, that God, the lover of mankind, who has received his soul, may forgive him every sin, voluntary and involuntary, and be merciful and gracious to him. So they're still praying for this later. Um, as you go along, I don't want to take up a whole lot of time here because it's just it's, it's cumbersome. I, I can post all these quotes um, at, at some point. But basically, by the end of the 4th century... You find prayers for the dead in the liturgies. You have the fathers asserting that these practices are for the good of the of the holy dead, um, that this practice was from the apostles, and that these people are being helped by the prayers of the faithful, the celebration of of the the mass and the Eucharist. Um, and you really don't have, at least from what I've I've read of the history, um, a, a noted denial of any of this until a heretic named Arius, who was an Arian, just to be even more confusing, um, spoke out and talked about uh, prayers for the dead being of no avail. And we read this in a, a book of heresies by Epiphanius. Um, by the time you get to the 5th century, now you've got uh, Gregory the Great saying each one will be presented to the judge exactly as he was when he departed this life. Yet there must be a cleansing fire before judgment because of some minor faults that may remain to be purged away. Um, in the 13th century, you have um, some of the major councils that are kind of putting the official stamp um, on the, the more official doctrine of purgatory. Uh, the first council of the on in 1245 was actually dealing with differences between the Western and the Eastern churches um, because of the schism that had started about 240 years earlier. Um, and they are actually speaking of purgatory and saying, yeah, the Greeks basically have uh, the same view that we do on these points and on these other ones. Um, 
they discuss the difference between uh, purgatory, heaven, and hell in the Second Council of Leon, the Council of Florence, basically lays out what you see in the Catechism today. Um, and so that, that's basically the development. Um, it's it's really laid out in those councils. Uh, the uh, the catechism today is basically reflecting what you see there. Um, and uh, you know, this continues basically up until the 16th century Reformation. Um, you know, Luther did not originally oppose purgatory. There's, there's he's, he's not actually going after the doctrine in, in the 95 Theses at least. I know later he came to. Um, to oppose it strongly. Uh, Calvin opposed purgatory, um, but he admitted that prayer for the dead was an ancient practice. And again, some of these are just seeds uh, that later grew um, that you find really early, and then, uh, but fairly quickly, you have all of the ingredients for purgatory being um, spoken of by many of the major church fathers. Um, and then just to bring us up to date, and, and uh, Tony mentioned this earlier, that there are even um, some Protestants that are are starting to come around to the doctrine. Um, C.S. Lewis, who was basically Catholic except for uh, uh, being obedient to the Pope, um, upheld the idea of purgatory. He said in letters to Malcolm, our souls demand purgatory, don't they? Um, he said, if there's no objection, I'd rather be clean first uh, <laughs> when it comes to entering heaven. Um, Roger Olson, a Baptist professor, he's not opposed to a view of purgatory. He talks about uh, whether evangelical Christians should adopt some version of it. The question that bothers me is how can we picture men and perhaps women who absolutely hated people entering into the joys of paradise without some kind of correction? And then probably the most famous uh, person writing about it today is Jerry Walls, the uh, Reformed professor from Houston Baptist, uh, who's written an entire book defending his own unique view of purgatory. Um, so I, I guess that's basically my answer <laughs> is uh, – is, is the development, uh, you see early seeds in the very first century, um, and you see a consolidation of those and growth into the uh, fairly official doctrine. You start seeing that in the late second and third century. By the time you get to the fourth century, you've pretty much got what we have today, even though it would be another you know, uh, 800 years or so before a council finally decided that they needed to say something about it officially. I'll stop there. All right, Tony, go ahead, and and uh, you guys have about ten minutes or so to pass back and forth. Go ahead, Tony. Sure, and and, and I don't I don't really have much in in way of response. Um, you know, I, I think it's a pretty well established fact that that the you know the historical development that Doug has pointed out is is a pretty well established fact. Um, I more more or less include that question because I I wanted uh, people to see the development of the doctrine. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, Doug has done a good job of acknowledging that this is a doctrine that's developed over time. And I appreciate that honesty and transparency. You don't always see that when you're interacting with Catholic apologists. So I do appreciate that. Um, it, it's interesting that you bring up Jerry Walls and, and, you know, I kind of want to talk a little bit about some of the mechanics of the treasury of merit and we'll, we'll get into some of that a little bit more, but, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Doug, but when a person's, um, when a person's temporal punishment is remitted of them um, by being issued an indulgence from an indulgence from the treasury, they don't experience any sort of suffering um, when that happens. It's not like that's fast tracking their suffering. So they get a bigger dose of it or anything like that. They, they, they are purified at that point without the suffering, correct? Yeah, I've, I've seen things back and forth on that. Um, 
the uh, and gosh, there's just there's just so many subtleties that we don't have time to get into. It's it's kind of maddening. <laughs> there's um sure. there's just so many distinctions that that have to be made to really understand all of this. Um, w- one of the important ones would be that there's a difference between purgatorial suffering to purify the soul in the sense that okay, we have to get the rest of this sin, sinful tendencies, whatever, out of you. And the notion of actually paying for one's sins in the sense that you are now um, being brought into the process of justice. Um, so to, to maybe put it in just more easier to understand terms, um, if I'm a thief at heart and I steal $100 from you, um, I could have a change of heart. I don't want to be a thief anymore. I come to you. And, and let's say you say, okay, I forgive you. I'm not going to take you to jail. I'm not going to sue you or whatever. Um, that forgiveness does not put $100 back in your pocket. In other words, inequality, injustice is still existent. And if I don't have $100 to give you, uh, maybe I could do something. You know, I, I could suffer for you. you know, I could do $100 worth of work or something. Because for us, for you and I to be reestablished in our relationship, justice needs to be done. Um, it, it's not simply that you haven't forgiven me until I give you the $100, but you're still out $100, and I don't want you to be out $100. I feel bad about that. Uh, so forgiveness can't restitute that. Um, what an indulgence does is it says whatever this guy has left on his ledger that he owes, um, we're going to kind of cover that. Um, so it would be like somebody saying, Doug, I, I see that you really would like to pay Tony back that $100 and you don't have it. Well, tell you what, instead of working really hard and earning the money and giving it to him, I'm just going to cut you a check and you can give it to him. So that, that, that's basically the idea of an indulgence is, is that the, the payment that needs to be made for justice to be served, uh, that does not have to be undergone by somebody um, personally. Like I can't get somebody else's merit and become a better person, but they can pay for the effects of my sin um, and anything I have left to pay, that they can go ahead and give me the merit that I need to, to pay that off. So the the so so we so we have it sounds like we have basically three three kinds of uh issues that are being dealt with in purgatory. We have um that there is sort of a stain in terms of what my sin has done to my soul, that my soul becomes kind of tainted and all banged up. And that, um, that the purgatory process is um, restoring that to its perfection or its original intent. Then there's also kind of the moral perfection of um, I'm still a sinner. I'm still oriented towards sin. I'm still turned in on myself. And so purgatory kind of helps me to finish the process of of working that out. So I'm no longer oriented towards sin. And then there's this restitution. Um, I'm assuming restitution being made to God um, aspect as well. Would you say it's fair to categorize those kind of three broad things that are happening? Um, sort of all, all three of those are, are slightly off. Um, d- just to be clear, because I think we're, you know, we're coming from two different paradigms. Language means different things. And so it's always hard to, to really know when, when we're understanding um, so just some, some quick corrections. Uh, first, um, the state that the soul dies in does, cannot get any better in the sense that it grows in in uh, love for God or, or grows in um, holiness in the sense that it gets better. You lose what is bad, but you're not gaining any more, if that makes sense. Sure. Okay, so it, it's... 
the stain language, I just, it, it all depends on what the stain is. <laughs> you know, um, yes, obviously, if there's a stain of sin, it's not going to be there in heaven, but it depends on what, that's, what, what are we talking about when we talk about the stain. Um, so really, purgatory is a purging. It's a getting rid of. You don't get anything in purgatory. So if, if, you, you know, if you're one of these deathbed conversions and you've just been a horrible person your whole life, there's not going to be much left of you, in a sense, <laughs> when, when purgatory is over. You, you, don't, you don't get bumped up to Mother Teresa status by spending, no matter how much time you spend in purgatory. There, I'll use all those irritating words again. Um, <laughs> so, so there's that. Um, and then the payment, as far as, as owing God, it's not so much owing God as it is owing justice. It's, it's just simply unjust that you lost $100 and I never gave it back to you out of my own pocket, uh, so to speak. Um, justice is being served. God is, in, in order to bring uh, the entirety of creation into a state of perfection, justice has to be served perfectly. And so someone who uh, was never able to, to make up for the bad effects of their sin in this life has the opportunity to make that up through uh, the suffering they undergo in purgatory. Okay, so so to to sort of recorrect that, then we have what what might be called the moral transformation aspect, which would be kind of the the um, sinful things that are kind of stuck to us, that the the just the junk that we have stuck to us, that's a result of our sin and our time uh, living as sinful creatures, and that's being purged off of us. And then we That's have right. it's, this, it's this restitution, yeah. right? We have this restitution to justice that needs to be made as well. So we have those two broad right. categories. So yeah. indulgences, can they affect both of those or just the restitution to justice? They can affect both, but it's not really, and this, this is getting really theoretical here. I mean, we're, we're like two or three degrees away from what the church just comes out and, and teaches. <laughs> um, as best as I can understand at this point, um, one thing that I think was a really unfortunate, very unfortunate uh, result of the indulgence abuse uh, during the Reformation era was that people got the idea that indulgence is just a one-way thing. Um, an indulgence has a, has a variety of conditions that have to be met before it can be of any avail. Um, a, a person suffering in purgatory would already have to be of the sort of um, character or whatever you want to call it um, that wouldn't need the purgatory to get rid of their imperfections in order to take the indulgence in order to pay off whatever debt they still owe. So technically, I mean, I've never seen indulgences described as anything other than paying off the the penalty debt that is still there. Um, so in other words, if you have someone like Hitler, and, and again, I'm going to have to use the spatial and, and timed um, language, but let, let's say it's going to take a million years of suffering for, for justice to be done for what Hitler did. Um, if, 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 if a million years' worth of merit can be given to him to pay that off, um, then that would make it so that he doesn't have to spend all of that time there. That does not, an indulgence does not make him morally pure, though. And again, this is this this gets very speculative at this point. Um, perhaps one follows the other, and the indulgence just kicks in as soon as the rest of it starts. Um, there's there's better people to answer this than, than me. I'm not I'm not 100 percent 
sure that that, uh, that I would have the right answer to that, to be honest with you. But like sure. I said, I, I, have not, I have not seen indulgences described as getting rid of the stain of sin or, or you know, cleaning you up like a bath and, and these other analogies that some people use. Um, technically, when it's spoken of, the indulgence is for the penalty that is that is owed. Right. And, my, I mean, my understanding is that the penalty and the stain, that those were just two ways to talk about the same thing. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm mistaken, but that's how it's been explained to me. And, and no, I they're, guess, definitely, they're definitely two different things, definitely. Sure. So are okay. you familiar with uh, are you familiar with the apostolic pardon, or it used to be called the apostolic blessing? I, I've heard the words. Um, the, the, sure. So, so reading ahead. from... Reading from the handbook on indulgences, number 28, which talks about the apostolic pardon, um, I'm going to summarize because I know we're going to be buttoned up against time to get to the next questions. But essentially, the apostolic pardon is something that any any priest who uh, is able to do final um, um, last rites um, can mm-hmm. offer to anyone who is in a state of grace. So there, there are the three, they call them the three constants. There's three different conditions. We'll need to get into them, but um, a person who's in a state of grace and to quote from the, uh, the handbook here um, says at some point has prayed during their life, has been in a habit of reciting some prayers during their lifetime. So this is a plenary indulgence that can be issued by any priest during the, during a person's death or even to an unconscious person who has been in a habit of reciting prayers at some time during their life will immediately, they'll, they will skip um, purgatory. Um, So, so the idea that there are, there are, um, there are some things that indulgences can deal with and some that they can't, um, that doesn't really seem to square with what I'm reading about how that particular indulgence works. Um, and it doesn't really seem to square with what I've always understood as far as um, indulgences go. Um, so I, I guess I, I don't know that there's much to say about that, except that it, it seems like, um, you know, Jerry Walls might not be your best um, your best go-to, because he would actually go a step further than the church and would deny the ability for indulgences in the first place, for the idea of merit being transferred, because he says, um, you know, he has a video online where he was promoting his book, and he says, um, if purgatory is about sanctification, you can't buy your way out of it. It's an essential process of moral transformation, and you simply can't shortcut it. You simply can't bypass it. So so he's actually going so far as to say that there is a, a particular amount of, of transforming that has to happen, and there's nothing that can change that. Um so yeah, he, okay. he's going to go with you on some of those um, planks that you talked about, but he's going a little further than I think you want to follow. Okay, Doug, take two minutes, wrap us up, and then 20 minutes left. We'll do 10 minutes, 10 minutes. So, Doug, go ahead and uh, take a minute or two, wrap us up, and we'll get on to your third question for Tony. Okay, yeah, and I, it, it looks like we're, we're definitely going to run out of time, unfortunately, I think, to, to get really into the treasury of merit. And, you know, when it comes to the indulgences and all that, that this, it all gets very tricky. Um, you know, a plenary indulgence, you know, Cardinal Bellamy writes, that the Pope does not absolve the soul in purgatory from the punishment due his sin, but offers to God from the treasure of the church whatever may be necessary for the canceling um, of that punishment. So the, the punishment that is due... Uh, because of sin, uh, is different than the sanctification of the soul. 
Um, and he lists several conditions. It has to be granted by the Pope. There has to be a sufficient reason for it. That reason has to pertain to the glory of God and not merely to the um, accruing to the soul in purgatory. Indulgences cannot be acquired without a sincere conversion of mentality and unity with God to which the performance of the prescribed works is added. And, and I would just say that um, uh, St. Thomas has a, a good way of saying this, and I, I'm not going to dig through my notes because it will take too long, but essentially what he says is, is, is that the merit given from the treasury of merit that we talk about from Christ and the saints um, doesn't get the person out of purgatory. Rather, it allows them the ability to pay off their sin. So, you know, there, there seems to be a, a very strong component in the standard writings um, of, of personal experience and personal, um, uh, uh, I don't know how to say it exactly, the, the, the person is still the one who is applying these things. And um, it's, it's not as automatic as it is often uh, portrayed. All right, we need to move to the third question, and uh, about uh, ten minutes on this. So, I'll just ask you guys both to kind of condense uh, the the answers of, as much as possible, just so we can get some good uh, discussion on this. Third question to you, Tony: Does the process of sanctification occur apart from our actions or experiences? We've got ten minutes. Um. Sure, and and to be honest, you know this is a this is a really good question, and I I don't know that I had thought deeply about it um, in the past. I I guess I would say ordinarily yes, but um, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. So, you know, the reform paradigm would affirm that sanctification ordinarily occurs um, through the use of secondary means, primarily through the means of grace um, of the the preached word, um, you know, by an ordained pastor and um, the, the um, public prayer and public worship, um, as well as the, the Lord's Supper and baptism. So um, I guess ordinarily I would say there is an experiential element of it, but even in those, even in those instances, um, we, we don't directly experience the sanctification. So when, when I um, participate in the Lord's Supper on a Sunday, um, I don't directly experience something different than eating bread or than drinking um, wine. Um, when I hear the word preached to me, I don't directly experience something other than sound waves hitting my eardrum and causing, you know, neurons to fire. So I I'm not exactly sure what to make of this um, because in some ways, I, I guess that would mean we're sanctified both according to our experience and apart from our experience. Um, but I I'm, I'm also apt to say that there's, there's a, there's a possibility that, sanctification occurs entirely apart from our experience that God simply does things that we're not aware of. And I guess we would have to parse out a little bit about what it means for something to happen according to your experience. Do you have to be aware of it in order for it to be according to your experience or could it be something you're unaware of? Um, you know, I would be apt to say you could be unaware of it. There are things that are happening spiritually, the Holy Spirit indwelling in you that don't necessarily produce a conscious result that you you can point to and experience as a unique specific thing. Yeah, I, I I think what I was getting at with that question was not so much do you experience the sanctification, but but does sanctification occur without some actual event uh, taking place in our lives? In, in other words, and, and this is something that I, I think. You know, I think really all three of these questions are are, are not really um, designed to to push one way or the other. 
so much as, as to just force people to think about the fact that, you know, when especially you know from a more reformed Protestant aspect, the focus on salvation is, is very often so much on justification. Um, and then you, you know, and at least in my past, the question then became, well, then why am I doing everything else? Um, <laughs> and I remember being shocked the first time I heard an evangelical professor say that, well, we're, you know, we we're justified by faith alone, et cetera, et cetera, uh, but sanctification is by works, and. I kind of freaked out because you know, this is a free grace guy. You know, I mean, he's absolutely 100% as far as you can get um, off off center <laughs> when it comes to, to uh, justification sola fide. Um, but it really opened my eyes that, yeah, it, what we do in this life must matter somehow um, or else, you know, why wouldn't we just poof, you know, be in heaven the second we believed? Um, and so I, I think that this is a good maybe intuition pump in, in some respects for people to think about purgatory in the sense that you know, we, we don't all, in fact, most of us don't get through this life um, finishing really, really strongly. <laughs> and um, we, we would rather be a, a bit cleaner, as C.S. Lewis says. You know, I'd, I'd rather get cleaned up for, first before I walk into the king's chamber. Um, this is not a denial in any way of Christ's sufficiency. What it's saying is, I just want to be a saint when I get to heaven. I don't want to still like porn. You know, I don't want to have not made up for the stealing that I did or these sorts of things. Like, I want everything to be right. And it seems like certain things just can't be done without our personal experience of them. So I, I don't think that final sanctification comes with with just you know the, the blink of an eye. Um, that resurrection and glorification are, are are a different thing. But as far as the soul goes, um, the, the person in the intermediate state, you know, prior to the resurrection after death, um, it just makes a lot of sense. I think that whatever needs to be made up that they just didn't get around to in life, there's now an opportunity for that. And if I can just say one more thing, this is just an illustration. It won't be another point you have to answer. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I think has always been a difficulty for me and others with the, the evangelical gospel is this idea that, you know, Hitler and my grandma can end up sitting next to each other, you know, as long as Hitler made some kind of profession of faith right before he died. That there's just a, a massive injustice there. Um, the purgatory solves. Um, yes, Hitler could eventually get to heaven if, if he exercised faith and, and, and you know, whatever else um, prior to his death. But that doesn't mean that he is just going to get off scot-free for what he did. And a true believer in God, a true lover of God, wouldn't want it to be that way. Sure. And, and I think this comes back to the, that Calvin quote that I wrote is um, – I'm going to try to be gentle, but I can actually feel my blood boiling a little. Um, what you just said is actually is actually like really appalling to me, because um, the the Catholic paradigm and the Protestant paradigm would both affirm that Hitler, in this theoretical world where he you know he becomes a Christian before he dies, he didn't get scot he didn't get off scot free. Christ suffered for those sins. Um, and, and we, you know, we don't have to get into the difference between penal substitution and all that stuff. Um, the, the testimony of Scripture is that justice is served by Christ on the cross. 
um, that he is both the just, the judge and the justifier. He's both the just and the justifier. So for me to to hear that kind of language of well, even if he became a Christian, even if Jesus died for him, he has to pay for what he did. Um, to me, I'm sitting here going, but but Jesus paid for what he did. Um, Jesus paid for what your grandma did. Jesus paid for what I did. And so I can I can understand the sort of um, apparent um, the apparent idea that yeah it seems it seems discordant for my grandma and Hitler to be um, to both be um, saved and to experience the same thing after death. But it really that concept and that discomfort really reveals the idea that salvation it, it either is by grace or it's not. So either God shows grace um, to Hitler or he doesn't show grace to Hitler. And and the idea that God shows grace while at the same time not showing grace by insisting that he's punished for his sin, um, to me that that's really where it gets back to. And that's that's why, you know, those strong words from Calvin that this is just this is just unadulterated blasphemy. Um, that's really where it strikes home for me. Um, is is I, I don't think I could have I could have made a better comparison or a better uh, illustration of the issue at hand than you did for me. Um, so I, I I'm not sure exactly what more to say about that except that um, that really does reveal the idea that Christ's death on the cross wasn't a sufficient sacrifice to not only um, bring about the salvation in terms of a um, remission of sins, but also to take care of the consequences and the, the punishment of sins. Um, I have to be honest with you, you know, I've, I've got the Catholic Catechism on my um, desk here, and I've been trying to flip through it, and you get to the section on indulgences, and it, it doesn't make the distinction between moral perfection and the, the remnants of sin on our lives that you seem to be making. So I'm not, I'm not sure how to respond to that, but I, I don't think that that distinction that you're you're making really bears out so well when you look at the you know formal official teaching you know mechanism of the church um so i i have no problem um saying that jesus's sacrifice was sufficient to to merit um hitler's salvation the same way it was to merit mine or the or my grandma's or whoever um like i said i i can understand the sort of existential angst um, and, and this came up in our last discussion, too, is that I, I think the version of Protestantism that you were, were given was a shallow, um, ineffective version of Protestantism. And there are, are much more, and I'm not just talking about the robust or the reformed position, there are much more robust articulations that, that these kinds of things just aren't really an issue in. Um, you don't hear a lot of, of really um, strong, you know, uh, ALC Lutherans who are um, all broken up about the fact that Hitler was shown radical grace. Um, it just doesn't happen the same way. So, okay, okay, let's uh, let's go ahead and move to Doug's third question, just because we're right up at that time. If we want to be able to squeeze it in, you'll probably get eight minutes in this round. Uh, so, the third question, Doug, is uh, what is the difference between the imputation of Christ's righteousness in Protestant models and the transfer of Superrogatory merit from the treasury of merit and Roman Catholic models. Let me read that one more time. What is the difference between the imputation of Christ's righteousness in Protestant models and the transfer of superrogatory uh, merit from the treasury of merit in the Roman Catholic models? I ask you to keep your question as condensed or answer as condensed as possible to allow a little bit of discussion. Go ahead. 
Yeah, this is going to be rough. We, we <laughs> I, I wish we would have gotten to this question about an hour ago. Um, but but luckily, I think it's going to dovetail in uh, nicely with, with what I wanted to um, say about what Tony just said, because um, the, a big part of the difficulty in this discussion is that there are so many more distinctions in the Catholic model that have to be understood, and it's just not really possible in Protestant language to, to get it all out there and have it make sense. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to, this is just going to be a very surface answer, but essentially the idea of imputation is more of a, a crediting of something good in another um, or something bad in another to somebody else without any um, necessary effect on that person. Um, so in the imputation model, Christ's atonement basically consisted of, of his obedience and his goodness um, being sort of credited to our account. And, and um, it's a, what's called a forensic declaration. It's a legal um, declaration. Um, imputation is affirmed by Catholics in, in a sense, but not in the way that, that Protestants use it. And so typically we'll use the word uh, infusion. Infusion is a real change, an actual change, in something such that what is said of them is actually true because of a difference in that person and not just a legal declaration or some kind of extrinsic um, denomination of that person. So when we are talking about Christ's righteousness, uh, the Catholic model says that at justification, uh, love for God, true agape love for God is, is actually infused into the person such that they are now reoriented and uh, in a loving relationship with God uh, that they could not have been had it not been for Christ's sacrifice um, and, and faith. Um, the difference, taking that into the, the idea of purgatory, is that whatever happens in purgatory is actually happening to the person. Um, they don't just get a statement saying, okay, you're purged now, even though they really aren't. Uh, they don't get a legal declaration saying that they have paid uh, for the consequences of their sins, even though they really haven't. Um, so although there are some aspects of, of calling somebody something based on Christ, that is true, um, but the infusion account says, no, that it actually has to, to affect real change. It has to actually happen. Um, in the person, and so um, the application of of supererogatory merit from the treasury to somebody does not result in a legal fiction or just a an external statement that is considered to be true and, and God then acts on as if it were true. It's actually really true of the person, uh, and I, I think that if just one thing real quick. Um, I've got one more minute, so I'm just going to use it. <laughs> um, all of this is by Christ's grace and would be impossible without it. Uh, this is not a, a battle between whether we are saved by Christ's grace or not. Um, purgatory has to do with justice and mercy. And because of the same kind of difference between imputation and infusion, uh, the Catholic says that for my relationship with God and others to be completely restored, justice and mercy have to go together. Uh, the mercy is that God has given me the grace uh, to, to enter into this state of justice, but justice, just by definition, cannot just be a simple legal declaration. Uh, forgiveness, we can be forgiven, but uh, the, the debt of sin does not get paid because we are forgiven. 
if I break your lamp and you forgive me, that's great. But justice is not done until I replace the lamp. And there's no way to just apply buying the lampness to me by somebody else buying the lamp and then um, saying that I did, even though the lamp never actually ends up in your possession. Okay, so I'm sure. Take, uh, take uh, four minutes at 7:59. I'll break in. Go ahead. You got about four minutes. Sure, and and um, I do have to object to the language of legal fiction. Um, I, I think that's a, a kind of a that's kind of one of those phrases that gets thrown out there to make it sound way worse than it actually is. Um, in reality, if if the judge says you're not guilty. Um, and the judge is the one who speaks things into existence by the power of his will, then it's not a legal fiction, um, especially when um, you have, um, you know, and I don't want to get into all the details, but when you have the transfer of obligation of debt from one party to another, um, if, if, if justice demands that my lamp is paid for, then uh, someone else paying for the lamp fulfills justice, even if you were the one that broke it. Um, and I know we might disagree on that, and that's fine. Um, but the, the model of – I guess where this question is getting at is that – the um, and as I said, I'm a little bit baffled at your presentation of what purgatory is. But the, the, the presentation of purgatory that I've always been given is that um, there's certain things that need to be fulfilled in order for a person to be ready for heaven. We can talk about it in terms of stain. We can talk about it in terms of all sorts of things. But the transfer of merit from the, the treasury of merit and, and um, the idea that there needs to be something or even is something in the treasury of merit beyond just Christ's merit um, is baffles me as well. Um, but the idea that that can simply be transferred um, without if, – if purgatory is about suffering, then, then I guess the transfer would have to include a, a sort of – in suffering. But the idea has always been presented that if um, St. Augustine has some set, you know, some extra merit for me, um, he can apply that to my punishment, and that punishment is no longer an obligation for me. Um, so so the, idea, the, you know, the idea behind this is that even within the Catholic model, there is, um, there is a transference such that there's not always an experience of the suffering or of the payment on, on the behalf of the person who is obligated to it. And I, I just close, um, I'll close here. I just want to read from the, the Catholic Catechism, um, number 1472, uh, under the section on indulgences. It says, to understand this doctrine and practice of the Church, it's necessary to understand that sin has a double consequence. Grave sin deprives us of communion with God and therefore makes us incapable of eternal life and privation of which is called the eternal punishment of sin. On the other hand, every sin, even venial, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures, which must be purified either here on earth or after death in the state called purgatory. This uh, purification frees one of what is called the, quote, temporal punishment, unquote, of sin. These two punishments must not, and it continues on just to talk about how the punishments are not vengeful on God's behalf. It's just the nature of what sin does. And I close that because that really is where the debate comes down, is that there are two kinds of consequences for sin. And Christ's merit, uh, Christ's death on the cross is only sufficient for one of those. The other one, the person still needs to take care of. It still needs to be dealt with in some way that isn't always by Christ. Sometimes it's by the merits of Augustine, sometimes... Um, it says here, even especially by the prayers of the Blessed uh, Virgin Mary, um, the idea, and this is why Calvin um, came down strongly calling it straight-up blasphemy, is that there are aspects of sin that Christ's death simply does not resolve. 
All right, gentlemen, we are right out of time. Um, just want to thank you both for for coming on, Doug. Really appreciate you coming on. Speaks to your to your character, and uh, really appreciate you coming on, Tony. Always appreciate you coming on, and uh, maybe we'll even get round three next year. We'll see. So uh, appreciate you guys coming on. Thanks a lot. Dan. Thanks a lot. All right, guys. And again, you can find Doug at uh, Soul Device. Uh, his blog there, and you can find Tony Arsenal at the Reformed Arsenal. Uh, both, again, brilliant guys. Check out their works. Next week, we will have a debate on Sola Scriptura. Uh, our friend Nate, Nathan Taylor will be back uh, doing that debate, and we will have a Roman Catholic apologist on. Appreciate you guys uh, tuning in, and look forward to uh, seeing you all next week. God bless. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.